0: WIHI is pleased to present a special edition podcast, Women in Action, Paving the Way for Better Care. This podcast features a panel of outstanding women who are creatively and effectively reshaping caregiving and conversations about health and health care in the U.S. and around the world. I'm Madge Kaplan, host and producer of WIHI and IHI's Director of Communications. Whether it's blowing the whistle on dangerous levels of lead in drinking water in Flint, Michigan, bringing the healing powers of dance and movement to hospital patients, or shining a human spotlight on disease outbreaks throughout the world, we learn from the panel that there are multiple ways to take action and make a difference today. WIHI recorded this keynote panel on December 11, 2018, in Orlando, Florida, at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's 30th Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. The panel is moderated by IHI President Emerita and Senior Fellow Maureen Bizignano and features Mona Hanna Atisha, Vanya Dionisio, and Celine Gounder. You can learn more about all the speakers on IHI.org slash WIHI. The podcast is approximately one hour. We recommend that you have the keynote slides handy for reference as you're listening. The slides are posted on IHI.org WIHI.
1: Thank you, and welcome to our second plenary of the day. I hope you've all had a, an incredible day. And I know that this session, learning from these exciting stories this afternoon is gonna help us to make the next steps we need in our complex and challenging world today. You know that oftentimes what I'm hearing from people is that they're, they're uh, tired, they're focused, and they're trying to get through a day in this complex time. And oftentimes what they'll tell me is that they, when they get tired or stressed, they look down. They look down at their patient or they look down to the prescription that they're filling or the procedure that they're doing. And we really do need that looking down. We, we need someone who's attentive to the details of safety and who understands the complexity of patient care, especially the emotional burden when someone's sick. So we do need that focus, that looking down. But this afternoon, you're gonna learn some really exciting new ways to see And that is to look up, to start to think about when you really have got all of your skills focused on a patient, and you look up, you're going to see a different world. And you're going to hear through these stories that sometimes looking up will help you to see a different pathway for you, for your career. It will help us to look up, and as as Derek and Jason were saying this morning, to find your courage, your agency and then to work collectively to make a big difference in the world. That's what you're going to hear. You'll learn from all of us, I think, different ways. And at the end of the session, go home with a a set of skills and and perhaps a to-do list that will allow you to see and do in a different way. Oftentimes, when um, I'm at this meeting, young people will come up to me or any one of these panelists and say, I want to make a difference. I want to do what Derek and Jason said this morning. How do I plan my career? How do I plan my pathway? And what you're going to learn this afternoon is that, at least from my point of view, you can't. You can't plan your pathway. Uh, Derek asked me to um, show you this picture so you'd all laugh. That's me 40 years ago. And my first job in healthcare was as a nurse. And I loved my job. I found that every day when I went to work, I was using the clinical skills that I had. And I learned quite early that in addition to the IQ, I needed to have EQ, empathy. And I learned that when I could balance what I needed to know and and how to do that for a patient who was ill, that it gave me incredible uh, joy in my work. I learned that teamwork is absolutely essential. I could never do what I did. I could never find the joy I had in my job unless I I, I was able to work in a great team. After I was a staff nurse for a few years, my nephew, Robbie, uh, died as a result of a medical error when he was four months old, and it caused me to look up. It caused me to not only look at taking care of patients one at a time but to understand the complexities of the systems that we're working in. And I started to study safety and say, how can I make a different difference in the world, not one patient at a time, but making a difference in the system so that everybody is safer. And a lot's changed since Robbie died, but as you all know, and the reason you're here is because we still have a long way to go. And so I do think that being here together your agency, our collective wisdom, and looking up will give us a path forward. But I kept thinking I need to make a different difference. So I became um, a head nurse in an intensive care unit. 14 beds, uh, very busy. Every single day as I walked into that unit, there were patients waiting in the emergency department, patients in the hallway. We could never ever keep up with the flow. But what I noticed was I was walking to the 14 bed unit through a 14-bed pediatric wing, a pediatric unit, that on average had 2.5 patients every day. So I started to look around and find out, what could we do about this? It was driving me crazy to see patients stuck in flow. So I learned about different ways to provide care, new models, and I went to the CEO and I said, We have this 14 bed unit that's dramatically underutilized. If you would give it to me, then I will change the model of care and we can smooth out flow across the hospital. And he started laughing his head off. And he said, if you can get the pediatricians to move to the old part of the hospital, you can have the wing. So I said, OK. And I went to the pediatric meeting and I explained to them what I wanted to do. And they laughed and, and, and basically escorted me out of the meeting. Um, but for six months in a row, I went back and I kept changing what I'd said. I learned in that time that my curiosity quotient needed to be very high. I needed to study and learn. And I learned how to be multilingual. I learned how to tell a story of a patient in the ICU. I learned how to extrapolate to the population as a whole. I learned how to talk about human costs and about financial costs. And after six months, I got the unit. So, that was a great step forward. When I was 34, I was asked to be the CEO of a hospital. And I learned there from Don Berwick and Paul Batalden. in my very first week as a CEO, they said to me, what's the biggest problem that you have in the hospital? And I said, I don't know, I've only been here for a week. So we got a group of people together, and they sent me to Florida Power and Light in Miami. It was November in Boston, so I thought I needed to learn how to do quality improvement in Miami. Yeah. Um, But I flew down and those electricians, the quality people in the electric company, taught me everything that I needed to know. I came back convinced that we don't have all the answers in healthcare, that a lot of what we need to do needs to be harvested from other industries, from other places. And I started creating functions that said, go out and learn, bring it back in. It's the only way we're going to be able to improve as quickly as we need to. And then Dr. Joseph Duran, one of the world's first quality gurus, asked me to join and start a global consulting practice. And I learned how much culture matters. I learned that culture and context is important as the mechanism that you're trying to introduce. That we need to go in and be respectful of different cultures and organizations and in countries. But I learned an amazing amount by flying around the world, learning and teaching, and being able to harvest and bring those ideas back. And then in 1995, I joined Dawn and we started uh, working as IHI. And it's been an amazing journey to understand what leadership looks like, how culture and and, um, working in teams matters. I learned how important from Dawn that tempo is. We don't have a lot of time, and that's why we're here today. We've got to increase the tempo of improvement. We've got to um, create reliable spread systems. We've got to share, and IHI's motto of all teach and all learn is so critical, and it's such a, a driver for us all to be here today. And then, a few years ago, when Derek came on board, I retired, but I'm not doing very well at that. This is what my life looks like now. And this pathway, this journey, has taught me so much. I can tell you the pathway wasn't clear, it wasn't planned, but it it built on the idea that we've all learned clinical or administrative skills, and that if you work on your EQ, if you reach out and ask questions and care about other people, And if you really focus on your CQ, then we can start to make a difference. So go back to this morning and think about agency. Think about how you can empower yourself by looking at the system. And think about how we then collectively can improve the tempo and the pace of change. You've got some amazing stories. I want you to listen carefully. Maybe take a few notes. Because when you go back, you're going to be inspired. And these women are going to tell you how. Celine, tell us your story.
2: The year was 1958. A 14 year old boy prepared to leave home for the first time. He was the fifth and youngest child of sugarcane and rice farmers in a rural village in Tamil Nadu, in southern India. While his brothers went no further than the fifth grade, skipping school to play or nap, this boy spent all his time studying, by kerosene lamp at night, dreaming of a different life. While his brothers were put to work in the fields early, his mother and his oldest brother, a surrogate parent to the boy after his father had died young, they encouraged his studies. The boy was good at school, but the runt of the litter and useless with the hard work of farming. He was the first to leave the village for school, the first to go to college, the first to leave the country, the first to go on for graduate studies, and the only one of his generation and for years to come. School in the village was a shelter without walls. There was one teacher for all the students. They wrote their math problems in the sand rather than on a chalkboard. To go on with his studies to high school, the boy needed to go to town his brother arranged for a distant relative to cook for him. The boy was good at math and science and dreamed of going to engineering school. But between an excessive focus on his studies and a poor diet, his weight dropped from 49 pounds at the age of 13 down to 44 pounds by age 15. His friends nicknamed him Stick. You can see him there on the left in the photo. And while he graduated at the top of his class, no engineering school would take him until he met the minimum weight of 95 pounds. Doctors prescribed raw eggs and whiskey for him to put on weight, which, needless to say, made him rather popular with the other boys in the boarding house. He eventually made weight. Uh, Who knew you'd have to do this, not for wrestling weight class, but for admission to an engineering school. And he went on to the Indian Institute of Science, India's MIT, and from there to Toronto and then Chicago, arriving in 1968, at the height of the civil rights movement, and not long after this country loosened its racist restrictions on immigration. Relatively sheltered from the outside world until this time, the the boy talked with his friends about politics, family, and of course, women. They became men in the Chicago of the late 1960s, and it was there that he met the sister of one of his classmates, a French woman who would become his bride, and they made a life together in this country. This boy, stick was my father. Much of my own trajectory mirrors my dad's, being good at math and science, skipping a couple grades along the way, advanced degrees in the sciences, albeit in medicine and public health, rather than in engineering. But I faced different challenges. I'm both advantaged and encumbered by this nation's history, by all that came even before my parents immigrated to this country, and by where we fell on the social ladder. I grew up in a middle-class immigrant family. My father was a tiger parent before the term even existed. (laughs) When I was in third grade, Uh, on family road trips, he'd have me factor algebraic equations in the car while my sister rolled her eyes and yawned with boredom. My mother drilled me on spelling bee words and like any decent Indian American spelling bee contestant, I went to the state championships. (laughs) In the seventh grade, I attended school in the summers taking college-level classes. Um, And I was enrolled in the quote, study of mathematically precocious youth, a cohort study led by Johns Hopkins professor, Dr. Julian Stanley on how best to educate and challenge exceptionally talented kids. But as a girl at that time, and as I suspect may be the case even today, I had to prove myself again and again. For my dad's job, we had to move every three or four years, even in junior high and high school. When my parents enrolled me in a public school in a suburb south of Seattle, so this was pre-Amazon, pre-Microsoft Boeing country, the guidance counselor said that it would be a waste to put me in the gifted class because, he said, girls slacked off in high school and played dumb for the boys. At the time, there were only two girls in the gifted class my age out of 25 or 30 kids. Of course, who gets into gifted classes and magnet schools, and whether they should even exist, remains controversial today. But I got really lucky. Sorry, just a moment. In August, I was in India visiting family, and uh, one of my dad's old college classmates, um, who now splits his time between the US and teaching at an engineering college in India, invited me to come speak to his class. And uh, afterwards, over dinner at his house, he told me about his students. I was surprised to hear that over half the women, or half the students at the engineering college were women and all the top students were female. And yet, he said, engineering was a quote, MRS degree. So in other words, Indian parents weren't sending their daughters to engineering school to become full-time engineers themselves. They were sending them there to find good husbands. The first priority after finishing their studies was to get married, settle down, and have kids. And that's today. I know if I had been born in Purimapallium, the rural village where my dad's from, in the 1940s, I probably wouldn't have gone to college. A generation later, I might have gone to college, but not medical school, and I might still be living in the village now. I know all too well that, quote, success in life isn't just about hard work and personal decisions. I know I got very lucky, and it's why I feel a tremendous debt, not guilt, but a duty to give back, to contribute somehow. And it's why I've spent much of the last 20 years of my career working in global health and more recently caring for patients on Indian reservations. The stories we tell about ourselves are incredibly powerful. They tell us who we are, what we value, what our place is in the world, and how we can change it. Over the course of my career as a doctor, whether working in sub-Saharan Africa, on AIDS units in Baltimore and New York City, or uh, on Indian reservations, I've learned that those stories are also some of the strongest predictors of our health. I pivoted to medical journalism, a mix of writing, TV, film, and podcasting, to help others see and understand the stories I was witnessing. This might seem like a trivial fact, But do you know how the Navajo introduce themselves? Starting with the maternal side of their family, they'll tell you who their grandmothers, grandfathers, and parents are, the clans to which they belong. And then they'll tell you where they're from and where they live now. And then only maybe their good name. The way they introduce themselves matters because it communicates their place in the world, in their kinship system, their relationship to the land, and their belief system. Yet, much of their collective memory has been blurred, the stories of their ancestors lost. First came the long walk. As many of you may know, um, in the late 1800s, white settlers were moving westward. They had their eyes set on valuable grazing land, gold and silver, and other valuable natural resources, which are still coveted by many today. To make way for white settlers, indigenous people were displaced. In the case of the Navajo, the army burned their homes and fields, shot their livestock and poisoned their water, destroying their way of life and starving them into submission. Then the survivors, some 9,000 Navajo, were forcibly marched at gunpoint 400 miles to a place called Bosque Redondo in New Mexico. Bosque Redondo was an internment camp. Over the course of four years, another 2,400 Navajo died on the long walk and at Bosque Redondo, from exposure to the elements, hunger, dysentery, pneumonia, tuberculosis, and smallpox. Most of my Navajo patients can trace their family histories back a few generations, but those stories faded out with the long walk. The memories of that time were just too painful. We don't talk about such things, many will tell you. And those stories again blur during the boarding school years, a century peaking in the 1970s, when many Native American kids were taken from their families to be assimilated into mainstream white America. Our histories may burden us, but they also ground us. There's a professor of psychology by the name of Chris Lalonde who studies the relationship between personal narratives, persistence of Native language and culture, and the risk of suicide among First Nations peoples in Canada. As many of you may know, Indigenous people, Native Americans and Alaska Natives, First Nations peoples in Canada, Aboriginal Australians and the Maori of New Zealand have some of the highest rates of suicide in the world. But that doesn't mean that every single Indigenous person is at high risk of suicide. Chris's research has found that cultural strength and continuity are some of the strongest protective factors against suicide among First Nations peoples. As Chris told me, we use our sense of selfhood to propel us into the future. And there's evidence that that sense of selfhood doesn't just predict our mental health and risk for suicide, but is associated with a whole range of chronic conditions. Over the last couple of years I've served on the uh, editorial advisory board of TED Med. And one thing that's really struck me over that time is how reluctant scientists and doctors are to share their personal stories. It requires a lot of coaxing and even then what you hear is only a tiny sliver of the whole. Why do we conflate why do we conflate personal silence with objectivity and modesty? When you're different, it's especially important to know your history and to draw meaning from it. You can get lost in the homogeneity, feel out of place, unmoored, or invisible. The pressure to assimilate is disempowering. Whether you're an indigenous person or, let's say, a woman of color at an elite academic institution, in a high-level corporate job, or perhaps newly elected to Congress. You may feel lesser than, and that can take a real toll on your sense of selfhood, as well as your physical, mental, and social well-being. Your story and your people's stories are important. Your identity is very much a product of both. An identity is human dignity. So own your story, and ask your patients to share their stories with you. Thank you.
1: Celine, thank you so much for your story. You've shown us how the IQ, your academic background, and your EQ, your compassion for people, and your CQ, your curiosity to get out into the world, created a path for you. It's an amazing story. You've told us how important stories are, and I think that's such a, a lesson for us all. Because when we're human, when we share, the chances that we can come together with kindness and compassion, I think, increase, and you've shown us what happens when you acknowledge gratitude, when you think back and think, I got this, so I should give this, and that's so important. You reminded me when you were talking of an elder from Thunder Valley who said, um, you, you, they, as you know, the Native Americans think about seven generations, and as, as this man was thinking about his seven generations, he said, uh, so you want to make things better for your children, Yes, well then do something. And I guess that's what I'm taking from your talk today is you're inspiring us to do something. So thank you so much. Mona, tell us your story.
3: So I want to start with grounding us. Why are we all here today? Why are we at this conference? The weather in Orlando, it's kind of so-so today. Why do you do the work that you do? Why do you wake up every single morning? And I hope the answer in your head is our patients. It's our patients that we are privileged to serve. And I wanna tell you about one of my patients. This is Jasmine, isn't she adorable? She just came in for her four-year checkup. And she's one of those kids, when you ask her how old she is, she shouts her age, I'm four. Like, awesome. And the pediatricians have a bunch of pocket questions. One of our favorites is, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I asked Jasmine. And usually it's superhero or princess or basketball player. I asked Jasmine, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be five. <laughs> And in some ways, she knew that every year is an achievement. Even before our water crisis in Flint, Flint had been in crisis for decades with disinvestment, unemployment, poverty, racism, violence, population loss, crumbling schools, you name it, every disparity every obstacle to the health and success of our children. And that means Flint, like many places in this country, means that the zip code you are born in is the greatest predictor of where you will end up. Our children in Flint actually live 15 years less than a child in an adjacent neighboring zip code 15 years the zip code of your birth should not be the greatest predictor of your life course trajectory so maybe Jasmine knew that every year was an accomplishment so I went into healthcare and I went into pediatrics to not only treat ear infections but also to address inequalities and injustices, to treat what is directly in front of me, but to also treat what our trained clinician eyes often fail to see or don't want to see. Yeah, I screen for things like hearing and vision and blood pressure, but I also screen for things like poverty and safety and housing and food insecurity that arguably will play a greater role in the lives of my children than any medication that I can prescribe. And this is not new. The role of our environments, our situations, on our health, we know what impacts our health. In my book, I include a poem that I give to my pediatric residents. It was written in 1938, and it lays out the stakes better than I could. It says, when we're sick, we hear you are the one who will heal us. When we come to you, our rags are torn off and you tap around our naked bodies. As to the cause of our sickness, a glance at our rags would tell you more. It is the same cause that wears out our bodies and our clothes. We've come a long way since 1938. But in some ways, very little has changed. The environments of the cities we live in, the dirt, the air, the violence, the stress, the hopelessness, the water, can still predict our health outcomes, can still predict how long a life we will live, like in Flint. So Jasmine's physical exam was fine, and then her mom turned to me with a look that I see in the eyes of all parents who are worried about their children. And she asked me, is she going to be okay? I think I get this question every single day. Is she going to be okay? Because they thought the water was fine. They were told the water was fine. I mean, how could our water not be fine? It's America, the richest country in the history of the world. It is the 21st century. It's not 19th century London with raging cholera epidemics. It's Michigan. Where, is my, where are my Michiganders in the audience? Let me hear you. <laughs> Woohoo! awesome. So show me where you're from, and if you're not from Michigan, look around, and look what the Michiganders are doing. <laughs> Point to where you're from. So, awesome Detroit, so, so we are the Mitten State, and here's Flint. And what are we surrounded by? Water. We are surrounded by the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes are the largest source of fresh water in the world. 20% of the fresh water in the world is right around Flint. So despite all that, despite being America, the 21st century surrounded by all this fresh water, there's like, there's rules and there's laws and there's regulations and there's people, right, who wake up every single day to make sure that when we turn on our tap, our water is okay, right? So what do I tell Jasmine's mom? Do I tell her that for her entire life, during her period of greatest brain development, that she was exposed to lead-tainted water? Do I tell her about the science of lead, that it's a potent, irreversible neurotoxin? Do I tell her that we now know that there is no safe level of lead? Do I tell her that every governmental agency that was supposed to protect her and keep her safe failed and turned the other way? Do I tell her that she was poisoned by policy? Unless you've been underwater, you've probably heard of the Flint water crisis and you've seen pictures like this which is still hard to believe. What happened in Flint is a story of the most emblematic public health and environmental disaster of this young century. It is a story of what happens when the people charged with keeping us safe and healthy care more about power and money than they do about us or our children. What happened in Flint was a corrosion of democracy, driven by austerity. But the story of Flint is not isolated. It is a story of the deeper crises that we are facing right now in our nation. A breakdown in democracy, the disintegration of critical infrastructure, environmental injustice that disproportionately impacts the poor and the brown, for disrespect for science and facts, and an assault on our health and our children. But despite all this badness, I am here to share with you that the story of Flint is also this incredible story, almost a playbook of resistance and hope. And that is a story that we all need today. So when I heard that our water was not being treated properly and that it was missing an important ingredient which I had never heard of before called corrosion control and that it was so corrosive it was eating the engine parts at our auto plants, that it was so corrosive that it was leaching lead out of our plumbing into our drinking water, I freaked out. Any pediatrician, would freak out because as a pediatrician, I have literally taken an oath to protect Jasmine and all the kids just like her. And we know what lead does. It's probably the most well-studied neurotoxins. (coughs) And we also know that it's a form of environmental injustice. It already impacts our kids in Flint more than other kids just like in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia. Some of our country's most vulnerable children are already rattled with so many toxic stresses in addition to higher rates of lead exposure. And I knew that if I was going to make a difference in the story, a story that had been going on for a year and a half that was full of denials and dismissals, that I would need data, healthcare data, impact data in my pocket. If I was gonna move a mountain, I needed to show that proof of impact. Children's blood lead levels are part of surveillance programs, just like we have surveillance programs for the flu. And I tried to get that data from health departments and they didn't wanna give me anything. So do you know where I went next? To our EMR. And I pulled through our hospital records, the lead levels of children. And in rapid detective style pace, conducted the research to see what was happening to our children's blood lead levels. And what we found was not surprising, but heartbreaking. The percentage of kids with elevated lead levels doubled after our water switched with nothing happening outside of our city water limits. And in areas where our water lead levels were the highest, we saw the greatest impact and greatest increase in children's blood lead levels. And then I did something that doctors aren't really supposed to do, nor academics. I stepped out of my clinic and I walked into a press conference to share these research findings and to sound the alarm and to declare a disaster. And right away, every arm of the state began to attack me and my science and my credibility. They said I was wrong, that I was an unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria. And for a minute, I believed them. I began to doubt myself. For a moment, I said to myself, what have I done? I should have kept my eyes closed. I should have just kept going about being that busy pediatrician, mom, wife. What was I thinking? And then I quickly realized that this had nothing to do with me, but everything to do with my kids. And that every number in my research, in my evidence, was not a number, it was a child. And it was a child that I had probably cared for in that last year or so. And it was those kids that gave me the courage to fight back, to fight back with more numbers, with more evidence, with more science. And this is an important reminder for so many of us that live and often get lost in the world of numbers and data. What do your numbers mean? What do they represent? How far will you go to fight for them? And finally, it was our science, our persistence, our teamwork that spoke truth to power, exposed this man-made crisis. And within a few weeks, we were back on Great Lakes treated water. But to this day in Flint, We are still on filtered and bottled water as our damaged lead pipes are being replaced. But we have built a model public health program, leaning on the incredible science of child development, brain plasticity, resilience, to buffer the impact of this crisis. And sometimes I say that I'm writing prescriptions for hope. But it's more than just words. Our prescriptions for hope are real, evidence-based interventions that build resilience. From home visiting programs, high-quality childcare, Head Start, near-universal preschool literacy programs, breastfeeding support services, trauma-informed care, behavioral health services, school health, nutrition, the list goes on and on of what we've put in place to improve the health of our children. And I am not naive to think that children live in a bubble. We are working upstream on the bigger things that all children and families need to be healthy. Things like living wage jobs, poverty mitigation, restorative justice, participatory democracy, self-determination. I wanna be able to tell every mom and dad that comes in and asks me, is my child going to be okay? That we are doing everything to tip the scales. And in our very data-driven academic hats, we are robustly assessing our work and sharing our best practices. Because like I said earlier, Flint is not alone. Brown, black, white, rural, urban, children all over this nation are waking up to the same nightmares, the same toxicities of poverty, injustice, austerity, lost democracy, discrimination. And as a pediatrician, we know the medical and public health impact of these toxicities. They are all traumas. And incredible science has taught us that trauma, especially repetitive trauma, leaves lifelong scars. Developmental delays, chronic diseases, decreased mortality. And this is where we can once again learn from Flint. Yeah, Flint is a story of a crime committed with absolute indifference to some of the most vulnerable people in this country. But it is also a story about how everyday people, moms, pastors, activists, journalists, scientists, healthcare professionals stood up on behalf of our children. Flint is also a story about how our work in healthcare improvement stepped out of our comfort zones, stepped out of our hospital doors and into the communities of the patients that we serve. But it's even more than that. The story is about all of us. It's about who we are and who we want to be. Because once again, we are at a point in our nation where we need to ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want to be? How far will we take our healthcare improvements? How much passion are we bringing to the table? Are we waking up each morning for the right reasons? So my book that was just published, which I look forward to signing later this afternoon, is called What the Eyes Don't See. And it's about the very literal. We don't see lead in water. It's clear. It's invisible. It's odorless, tasteless. It's also about lead poisoning, which is known as a silent pediatric epidemic. We don't see the consequences, but it's way more than that. It is about people and places and problems that we choose not to see. And it is about our responsibility, especially those of us in healthcare, to open our eyes and each other's eyes to these problems. And it is not enough to be awake. We must act for what is right inside our hospitals and outside, even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when it seems impossible. Like I said earlier, as a pediatrician, I took that oath to protect our children. But I challenge you, I would argue with you, that we all implicitly took that oath. No matter who we are or what we do or where we live, it is our very civic and human responsibility And only then will we see a world that we have yet to see, a world of equality and opportunity, so that when I ask Jasmine what she wants to be when she grows up, she can dream beyond that next year. And she really can be that doctor, that lawyer, that writer, the president, a trajectory that is not bound by zip code, color of skin, school district, drinking water source, country of origin. Let us all work together to be a piece of that puzzle, to work on these kinds of improvements for all of our children. Our kids are counting on you. Thank you.
1: Mona, thank you for everything that you've done for children and families in Flint, but nationally and, and even globally. I think what you've done is your courage and your curiosity. Just asking yourself those questions allowed you to create a path that has having such an amazing impact. You've really, I think, changed our way of thinking here today from where in healthcare to where in health. Mm-hmm. And you've really, I think, inspired me and, and I hope all of us to go upstream. What's our role in preventing illness? If we're clinicians and we've, we've got the skills to take care of a disease, can we create that kind of curiosity and courage that you've demonstrated over these years to move upstream and save people's lives? Thank you so much for everything that you've done. Thank you. so great to think of safer communities in our hands, and so I thank you for that. Vanya, tell us your story. Okay.
4: My goodness. As an expressive arts therapist on the making, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of emotion going on right now. It's being vulnerable, I mean, I need to say that. Um, I feel very honored and grateful to be able to share my story with you of how, for the past 12 years, I have been breaking down barriers in medicine to help improve the quality of life of hospitalized children and their families. Wow. Hearing myself say this doesn't even it sounds real to me, especially thinking from like where I came from, which is Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. But unlike you guys, you know, what you might be thinking, My Rio de Janeiro wasn't this Rio de Janeiro that everybody see. My Rio de Janeiro was the slums of Brazil. It was a side where I was surrounded with violence, and poverty, and trauma. That's the Rio de Janeiro I knew. Back then, I was faced with a lot of many lack of basic needs, such as electricity, transportation, running water, and food on my table. I knew that based on the way I was brought up, my fate was to become the same thing that a lot of my friends from school become, same fate, which would be drop out from high school, live in poverty, and accept the struggles that our Gender, our zip code, our economic background, and the color of our skin. Those struggles were imposed on us by society because of our background. But for me, I just couldn't accept that fate. I knew that I wanted to do more in my life. I knew I wanted to do more. I knew that if I worked really hard every single day, things could change. I knew that it was time for me to proclaim to the world that that cycle stopped here. That's the cycle that, was, that happened to all my family, but I did not want it to happen to me. So fast forward, I left Brazil on my late 20s, and I came to the United States in the search of the American dream. But my definition of American dream was simply to be able to provide food for my family, something that we struggle with, and to provide to my son a better future, a chance, I feel emotional right now, a chance for him to have a chance to have a higher education, something I was never able to to achieve back then. The road, It was very hard in the beginning, like for many immigrants. I was first separated from my son for four and a half years due to immigration. And then I had to adjust to live in this country. I didn't know the language. I had to adjust to the culture. I had to adjust to everything that was unfamiliar to me. I had a goal. I came here for a reason. So I was okay with that. I did that, I, I got here, I worked three jobs, night and day, I was able to send money home to provide for my family, and it was okay. But I knew that still, I, something was not right. I, I needed to find my life calling. And just working three jobs, just making ends meet, that was, that was not it. I needed more. I knew I could do better. So that's when, well, i stopped stop for a moment. Um, when I was 10 years old, um, back in Brazil, I suffered a horrible, horrible childhood trauma. And back then, only dance, the support of my grandmother, and dance really helped me cope with my emotions and fears and really helped me to feel alive and to have the desire to, to be alive, basically. So I knew that I wanted to do something with my life that you know, could be related to dance. So. As you can see, I came a long way from from home. And what happened is I as I was working night and day, I I knew that I wanted to do something in my life to work to help people through dance, but I didn't know why, what. Until one day, when I was biking this is Children's Hospital Oakland. I was biking by the hospital and I stopped my bike and I looked to the right and I saw the windows and I immediately, immediately felt that life calling ringing and I knew that that was the place that I needed to bring dance. That's what I, needed to, I was meant to do in my life, is to bring dance so that kids that are undergoing hospital, hospitalization could have a chance to express themselves, cope with their fears and emotions and feel like kids, like, like kids love to move. So that's what I did. And then before I did that, of course, um, I did some more research and I learned that besides just that desire that I had to like teach dance to kids, that there was a problem. That in healthcare, of course, we, you know, the priority is the physical body. We understand that it's important to have um, procedures, it's important to have medicine, but as a human being, we are way more than that. So I learned that hospitalizations can often be traumatic for kids and cause PTSD, but not only in kids, in their parents as well. The effect, it's just broader. And unfortunately, the focus of the hospitalization is usually just the physical body. So the the emotional health and the psychosocial health is forgotten which is a problem. So that's why after I biked by that hospital, I reached out immediately and I offered to them, you know, uh, the idea to teach dance there. I was teaching already in Oakland at the Oakland Unified School District in the school. And I said, look, I teach dance to kids in Oakland, you know, in the school. And I did some research. I saw that dance is used in different countries as a way of people to cope. So let me teach, bring dance here for the patients, the kids. And of course, I called the volunteer services and then they're like, honey, this is a hospital.
2: <laughs>
4: Kids are hooked to IVs. They're sick. They're not going to be dancing. This is not the place. You know, like, OK, you have a good intention. We understand. We appreciate you which not. But this is just not the place. So I am a very determined person. And I heard that. And I said, OK, she's just saying this to me because she doesn't know better. If she knew better, she'd do better, like, you know, like my Angelou say. So um, I then didn't give up. I said, okay, I'm very determined. I want to do this. I know this will be beneficial. Let me reach out again. So in the course of eight months, I called the hospital to see if I could get a different volunteer person <laughs> to see if she would be maybe willing to like, you know, like be more uh, accept, like accepting, welcoming to the idea. Nothing. Eight months, nothing and i decided that i had to figure out a strategy so that i could get to the hospital and meet the right people so that they could give me the, the okay the green light so never worked in a hospital before but i love talking to people i love kids right so i reached out i applied for an entry level job entry job no entry level position and um, i got a, pos- a position at the er registration that was my job I got hired on March 13 of 2006. Within less than 10 days, I found my way around the hospital getting to know everybody, <laughs> asking questions, who to talk about, what. And then I learned that the people who held the key was child life. The child life department are the ones who, who decide what to do with the kids, right? So I met the child life specialist Maggie. And I pitched my program to her. And she said, well, sounds like an interesting idea. But you know, I don't really think this is going to work. Because again, the IV and everything. And then keep in mind, hospitals are used, I mean, most hospitals, uh, they're used to g- having like, visual arts, right? Like things that are more mild. So movement and dance was a big deal. So I told her, I was like, look, I work downstairs. I'm going to be coming here often to, <laughs> to <the afternoon.
2: laughs>
4: So why don't we just expedite this, you know, like, you know, give me a chance, allow me to come one day only. If, he, if it doesn't work, then I won't bother you, but I would. Uh, you know? And then she, she said, well, okay, you can come, but wait wait a minute, when are you going to teach? If you're working in an emergency from like 9 to 5, you can't teach uh, before work, the kids are sleeping, you cannot teach after work, they're going to be sleeping again. And I said, look, I don't need to eat lunch. Well, I come here in lunchtime. You know, the kids will be up, and then I can come during lunchtime, volunteer my time. Perfect, and we can try. And then she said, "Okay, I know that you're going to be persistent, so we can try." <laughs> and that's what what, what happened. I try. I got there my lunchtime. I changed my clothes really quick. Got something powerful. That was 2006. I got some boombox and I went to the schoolroom. I taught the first class. Um, it was, you know, I did all lot research beforehand because I wanted to be sure to keep the safety in mind, right? So I did that, and I, I show basically I showed to her exactly what I would do, so then she approved. And I did the first lesson. It, after that lesson, every day, the patients will ask her for, for dance again, so they'll come back to the schoolroom. So my feeling was, thank you. Thank you. So that was in 2006. That's when I, I started the program. It started with me only teaching my lunchtime, and then the need was greater. Children's Hospital Oakland has 192 beds, so we needed more of me, and that's why uh, I be, we, the organization became a nonprofit, and then we established a, a teaching program. So now we have taught, we have trained over 70 teachers, and we are in eight we actually provide the service to eight children's hospitals, in, mostly in California, and also at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital in Connecticut, and, and even in Brazil, we had a little program there as well. So uh, so far, we have touched a life of over 17,000 children here to date. And the program includes the entire family, so that's what's the beauty of it—it's a community. So before um, I go on, I would like to invite you to do a simple experiential with us. We do this a lot. Don't worry; I'm not going to be jumping around for now. It's okay. So I'm going to invite you to take a deep breath with me, please. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable. If you don't, you just can keep a soft gaze. Take a deep breath in, and let it go. One more time. And let it go. And slowly, slowly, I'm gonna invite you to think about a loved one. Someone you love unconditionally. It can be your child, your parent, anyone that you love. Place your hand in your heart, please. Take <laughs> A deep breath again. And let it go. Now I'm gonna invite you to think, if this loved one, were to be sick in a hospital, which kind of treatment would you like them to have? Which kind of experience would you like them to have? Let's take a deep breath again. And let it go. Slowly open your eyes. And if you feel like you want to stand up for a second, you're welcome to. We've been sitting down for a while i to invite you just to do a little movement we do with the kids. So we play this song in the hospital when we work with the kids and parents as the warm-up. So if you feel like standing up, great. Watch your neighbors. No injuries here. I know we have a lot of physicians, but we don't want to deal with that. So usually we open our arms like this, but we're going to do just four words so we don't hit your, your neighbors. So we're going to have the music a little bit louder, please. And then have your knee a little bent a little bit. Take a deep breath in. All the way up. Beautiful. And let it go slowly. And now with the right hand in front of you, we're gonna paint the rainbow. So let's get the rainbow colors here. Let's start the first color. First color. First color of the rainbow. Let's say red. Beautiful. Imagine your hand is a brush. We have blue now. We're painting the rainbow. Very good. Now we're gonna go with orange. Beautiful. Uh, green. Now we're going to do yellow with both hands All the way up, all the way up and keep it there Look, You guys look beautiful from out here Okay, let it go Shake a little bit Another deep breath And let it go Very good, so if you want to sit down for now Thank
5: you
4: Now I would like very much to bring it back. I mean, the idea is to be the whole song, but we don't have a lot of time. So (laughs) what I want to bring it back to is I heard a lot of talking about sense of agency, right? Talk in the morning, and we talk again. And that's one of the things that we really believe that's important for the children that we see, is that you know when you think about it, even as an adult, if you're hospitalized, everybody's doing things to you, right? So you have zero sense of agency, especially if you're a kid. So people come, they poke you, strangers coming in and out, which I understand, it's important, you know, like you're, we're, they're there to be treated. But it's so important for them to have a sense of self. So Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is um, a researcher, and he does a lot of mind and, and body trauma research, and I love this quote when he says, our sense of agency, how much we feel in control, is defined by a relationship with our bodies and its rhythms. In order to find our voice, we have to be in our bodies, able to breathe fully and able to access our inner sensations. In our sessions, the kids, they choose what they want to do. They choose the level of participation. They choose if they want to participate. And at that time, that's their time. So we feel very proud to be able to help them understand that they have a sense of, sense of agency in our sessions. We take pride of that. Now I want to show you some of the kids that we serve. We're going to play a song that we use a lot, the fight song we use a lot in our sessions. Like a small boat this is Camila. She loves ocean. to dance so much. When it's time it's to dance, day for dance class, she's already waiting the by the elevator for the classes. She's like, like love it. Words. We have Amro here. He's been coming to the hospital for 10 years, every week. And when he comes in the beginning, he was super shy and he was not about to dance. He'll come to class when he was dancing, when we were dancing, and it was time for him to dance, he said, say, I only dance if you, if you face the wall. He didn't want to be seen. Now, after a few years dancing with us, he's our unofficial TA. He goes around with his IV post recruiting other, other kids to dance with us. And we have a lot of, I mean, a lot of kids, I'm going to not tell the story of each of them. But those are kids who, you know, someone might think like, oh, she can't dance because she's so injured. Well, her physical therapist came to class and she was able to dance with us, you know, mildly. So we've modified the movements just for upper body, lying down, everything. Like, we are really able to to adjust so that the kids can really feel empowered. So this little girl spent over a year in the hospital and she danced with us almost every single day. So that's the idea of the program is to really connect families to bring them together and remind them that they're sick but they're still kids and they have the right to feel happy. Um, One other thing I wanted to share is that a lot of the times we think that, you know, kids get sick and they get treatment, sometimes they don't make it. Like in the case of Kayla, she danced with us for almost a year. And as you can see, her mom says, my daughter Kayla loved when it would be time to dance, even at her sickest. She spent a year in Oakland Children's Hospital and dancing brought her joy. We have since lost her to cancer, but thank you so much. This brings me to Dr. Patch Adams' quote, which is, you treat a disease. You win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, no matter what the outcome. This is Kayla. Thank you. And for that mother and that family, they knew, they know. They constantly reach out to us to say how precious that time with with her daughter in the hospital was when they were dancing. That's something that they, that those are the memories that they're gonna remember of, her, of their daughter dancing and, and having fun, although she was going through a hard time. I'm gonna stop talking for a minute. I'm gonna show you a quick video so that you can actually see in action how the program works. Juan Carlos was diagnosed Christmas Eve 2009 uh, with leukemia. He actually lived here in Oakland Children's Hospital for five months, uh, had radiation. Um, therapy, a lot of transfusions.
5: It was pretty scary because I didn't as my mom was saying I don't know what's going on like what will happen.
1: Even though he's been cancer-free for four years now he's been dealing with his immune system attacking the new bone marrow. All those feelings come back from the very first time in 2009 when he was diagnosed. You know the fears and anxiety and not knowing what's going to happen.
5: It's like going crazy, you know? Anything you want to feel like doing. I really like dancing. It's fun. I like expressing myself.
4: When we come here, we get to dance and get a little bit distracted from what's going on and all the medications. To me, anytime I see him laughing and happy, it it reminds
1: me he's still a kid. Cancer couldn't take that away from him. Get ready. Amro is eight years old and
3: he started coming here for a weekly treatment when he was nine months old. I feel like
5: good. And I feel like life.
0: Amro is hilarious. He's just like 40 years old in an eight-year-old body.
5: Death makes me feel empowered.
0: I can't even describe it. It's, it makes me cry. Dancing Power. What I see it does for these chronically ill kids is, it's life changing. I've been here for 32 years at Children's Hospital. I don't think I've ever seen a program that has been so liberating for these kids.
4: What I have witnessed with Dancing Power is that dance, it's, you know, brings them happiness. But not only that, it really helps them as well um, with their pain level.
5: Look out. All the way up,
4: bringing we up. We're here to really help everybody understand that dance is anything you do. Dance is—you move with your fingers, you move your eyes. You can be lying down in bed. You know, it's whatever comes from you. Isabel was born with a rare genetic condition called MPS6. Her body was missing an enzyme, and uh, so she has uh, some damage in her body.
5: In 2008. I I needed surgery, uh, spinal cord surgery, and something, I guess, went wrong, and that I was paralyzed when I was 13, and it was a hard moment in my life.
4: I said, well, you have two options. You can stay in the room and feel bad about yourself, or you just can not take the rest of the lemons off the tree and try to make some lemonade in life.
5: With Dancing Power, it- It reminds me how much I, like how much I love to dance. When I'm dancing, I don't think about anything. No problems. The only thing that I can say, you know, just in the back of my mind is like, I'm grateful for dancing power.
4: I can see my daughter full of joy, and uh, then that's priceless. You don't see a daughter with this disability, you just see a daughter who, wow, she's full of life.
5: I learned that just because wheelchair, you know, or, you know, things happen in life, you can still do the things that you love.
4: Thank you. And I'm happy to share that Isabel, the girl you saw last, uh, she recently graduated from college with honors in psychology and and she is now a official dancing power teacher. So she came to our training. Yes. She came to our training, it's a 30-hour training. She did everything and now she's able to her desire is to be able to give to other kids like her to share with the benefit that she has with dance. So it's a full circle. So I'm about to wrap it up. I understand. There's uh, <laughs> just so much like dancing and video and everything. But I wanted to, just to say that now that if you witness the power of expressive arts, of dance, um, I really believe that all of us, all of us here, have the responsibility to really take action, right? To start really thinking about not only saying, oh, yes, yeah, I support expressive arts in my hospital or for my patients, but actually, do something about it, you know, like not only just say something, but actually do something about it. And that means, well, perhaps supporting a program to go to your hospital, not our program necessarily, any program, and and value them and and be able to like provide some financial support because everybody needs to make a living, right? So like, I really believe that by really doing that, we can make a difference. We can really expand the reach of expressive arts. Um, And I'm going to leave you with this picture, which is, I want to just emphasize, this is me, <laughs> that um, if you have a life calling, a dream, a project, something you want to do, but you feel like, oh, I'm going to wait until it's perfect, it's not the right time, or maybe I'm not good enough to do this, please don't do that. You're going to be steering yourself away from actually accomplishing something and helping to impact and change lives. Just go for it. and I. Th- you know, I believe that if, if me, uh, a girl that has indigenous and Afro-descendant poor from Brazil that came to the United States with $20 in my pocket without speaking English, if I was able to do this, so can you. Yeah. I really believe in you. <laughs> Like Anne Frank said, how wonderful it is that nobody needs to wait a single moment before it's starting to improve the world. That's, I want to believe that tomorrow we're going to have a world where healthcare providers believe that expressive arts is very important for the life of their patients, that we, when you're treating someone, you're not treating just a physical body. We are more than that. And that's the future I want to leave for my son and for the next generations. Thank you.
1: So Vanya, you have filled my heart and my my mind, and I'm sure everybody's here, with humanity and kindness. And I really do think that your presentation is going to help us to redefine what healthcare means. I think we've got to understand the emotional impact of illness, especially on kids, but on everybody. And to start to think, not only how do I treat the illness, how do I treat the person? And I'm so grateful to you for that. You keep reminding me of Vivek Murthy, our former Surgeon General's uh, quote, where he says, love is the oldest medicine. And I think that's what I took from your your talk today. Thank you. So as we wrap up. We want you to take home some ideas, some opportunities for you to start to think about what can you do. And as you, as you uh, go back um, to think about agency, think about the stories of these three amazing women, all of whom ran into uh, potentially uh, career-stopping roadblocks, and they didn't stop. The persistence that they showed the blending of their IQ and their CQ, their curiosity, most importantly their EQ, that they're always thinking about what does health and healthcare mean? How can I think outside the box? You heard them run into um, roadblocks and, and you saw in all three of these cases that there was no clear path. None of these three people would ever have predicted that they would be up here telling these stories today when they started in their careers. So I'm hoping, that from their courage, their um, amazing uh, ability to see the body and the spirit together, that you'll go home and you will look up. You'll see new ways to understand the health systems that we're working in. You'll look in and you'll find your own agency, your own power, and you'll have the courage to step forward. And then you'll look out and together, I think, we can start to take some of these ideas and make the kind of changes that we're all gonna to need to make at a tempo and at a spread that will allow us to make, keep the promise to every patient everywhere that the best we know how will be done for them every day. So thank you, and Vanya, take us away. Oh, okay,
4: all right. So here's what we do in our sessions in the hospital. Either in the bedside or in group sessions, we always end our dancing power sessions with the past the beat activity, which is very simple, and is a freestyle portion, and the kids <laughs> really love it. I imagine that you are having the sense of what's happening next, right? So I'm going to invite now to the so stage nice. some of our yeah. pre-agreed volunteers. Come on. Uh, hey, Zinyu, um Kimberly, please, Rachel, and um, Janine. Dawn. Jason, <laughs> Dawn. <laughs> So um, so we're going to make a line, maybe, maybe move a little bit this way. Uh, good, maybe they can... By the way, this is my son, here with me.
5: <laughs>
4: he, he also helps with dancing power, of course, and he's the reason I did everything I did in my life. Rachel is our teacher at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, and Janine is our teacher at Children's Hospital, Oakland. I mean, UCSF, Children's Hospital, Oakland. So do we have anybody else? Jason is here, too, where is he? Come on, please. (laughs) Come on, Jason. (laughs) Anybody else feels inclined to come? We can do this. We we can have one more person. Dr. Berwick. (laughs) Derek Dominique. Yay. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to share, and now if you feel inclined to stand up, here's the thing. You all saw the kids dancing, right? They have IVs, they're sick, there's no excuse, (laughs) okay, no excuse. Other thing too is that I believe that we're all born because of our hearts. We're all born with rhythm, so we're all dancers. Here's what's going to happen. Come on, come on. I'm going to start with the movement, okay? And everybody will do the movement with me, so share the energy. After I do the movement, I'm gonna pass it to Lawrence, and then I'm gonna be calling the names, and you guys gonna do the movement with us, okay? Let's get the music high. So everybody, let's just start with this. Easy. Beautiful energy. Okay. I'm gonna do the first movement. Move the hips. All right, you can do it. All right, Lawrence, take us away. One movement. Anything? Oh, he wants to move that moves, way too. Okay. Next movement. Know. Everybody, let's follow. I forgot her name. Let's go. Hey, okay,
5: Jason. Know you want to do it. Let's go. How is
0: just been listening to a WIHI special edition podcast, Women in Action, Paving the Way for Better Care. We hope you enjoyed it. You can access a rich archive of WIHI programs, including all shows from 2018, as podcasts on iTunes. Consider subscribing and as archived audio on IHI.org slash WIHI. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan.